This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here once again with Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And Richard Lawson. Hello. If you want to feel old, you can realize that the Oscar nominations were last week. I feel weird Impossible. about that. I, <laughs> I, I, feel, I feel young and sprightly. Did oh, good. Did get a lot of nominations? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, and it, it's still February 2020, and we have our whole lives ahead of us, so oh, um, things, are, things are going great. I'm so excited, guys. I'm going to the Oscars this year. <laughs> <laughs> is that the last, is that like the, the last auditorium you were in, Joanna? Like, I guess maybe you saw a movie after the Oscars last year. It's not like it was the Oscars and then over. Maybe, but like it kind of feels like the last sort of mass gathering. (laughs) Um, So we're here. We have several weeks to go until the Oscars still, but award season is moving along. uh, And we are back to talking to people who are now not just Oscar hopefuls, but Oscar nominees, including Riz Ahmed who Joanna interviewed, uh, and I'm so excited to hear about it. And then uh, also I wanted to shout out uh, Riz's cousin Adnan, who he tweeted about, who uh, legit did not know what the Oscars were and compared the nomination to getting a nice email from his boss, um, (laughs) which was a perfect tweet. Um, I'm so excited for Riz and his entire family. We're also going to talk about the WGA winners, which were announced on Sunday, and then the uh, very intriguing email that the Oscar producer sent to the nominees about how this year's show is going to work, um, and answer some of your questions on subtext, as always. Um, But first, we wanted to start with some less awardsy and more industry news, which is that Warner Brothers has struck a deal to return the theatrical window for 2022, which is what they promised they would do when they uh, unveiled their whole bold plan to put everything on HBO Max day and date this year. Um, Richard, you sent us the IndieWire article that kind of ran all the down. So uh, do you want to explain why this is such a big deal? Well, Regal Cinemas, which is, you know, well, they have an owner, which is Sin World, which is a really, really big theater owner kind of conglomerate. Um, They were having a clash, let's say, with uh, Warner Brothers and also Regals in the U.S. have not yet reopened, Mm -hmm. but they are reopening in early April to accommodate in some part Warner Brothers films like Godzilla vs. Kong. Yeah, um, and then Mortal Kombat right after that. Yeah, so to, I mean, Oscars 2022, let's start talking. Um, <laughs> Mortal Kombat! <laughs> I'm very excited about it. I actually started playing a Mortal Kombat game randomly recently, because what else is there to do? And so now I'm like <laughs> reconnecting with 12-year-old me. Um, maybe 13-year-old. Um, but anyway, so so they will still be doing the day and date with HBO Max for those two films, even though they will be playing in Regal Cinemas. But then starting in 2022... There's going to be a 45-day release window, just, you know, theaters exclusive before anything goes to VOD or streaming or anything like that. And for some films, and I think some smaller films will be 30 days. 
but it's pretty significant. And, and, you know, an executive from sin world is like, you know, this is Warner brothers, you know, showing that they are committed to the theatrical experience, all that stuff. And it's hard not to read that and be like, you know what? It, I mean, it is kind of because, you know, if you want to see any of these big new movies in 2022 for the first 45 days of their release, so a month and a half, you have to go out to the theater. So yeah. my hope is that people will. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny seeing this anywhere article with Tim Chalamet's face on the front, like Dune is just going to be like the symbol of all hope for theatrical movie going like, we'll see how the movie is able to shoulder those expectations. Um, yeah, I mean, especially because like Villeneuve like also did Blade Runner 2049, which didn't which didn't mm-hmm. do well. <laughs> and, and this feels like a very similar project in a way. So, But yeah, if, I mean, 45 days is actually a lot shorter than like what used to be the original window. Um, you know, I think we've all been kind of being like, what will happen to movie theaters at all after the pandemic? Will the window still exist? Um, but at this point, it almost feels like the only reasonable thing to do. Like you cannot have 90 days anymore. I don't think like that just feels unsustainable, especially with like the way that Netflix is continuing to increase its footprint. Um, but 45 days feels doable. Like I think people would put up with that for something like Dune um, or whatever else Warner Brothers has coming in 2022. Yeah, and it's basically the difference. It's it's the beginning of December to two weeks after New Year's. Like, that's a significant chunk of time for yeah. people to go. You know, a, a movie would be dropping off at the box office significantly by that anyway. Yeah. But it is also enough time where someone was like, well, I could just wait. Do you know? Yeah. Both yeah. of those are true. Yeah. Unless I'm, you want to be part am, of the zeitgeist, you know. I know. Get, I mean, come to the theaters when you feel safe. I am, I am pro theater. I am pro all of that. I'm just saying, like, I can definitely see... You know, the the same is true of of sort of the Disney platforming release where you can pay extra or you can wait a little while and just get it on Disney Plus for something. And I know a lot of people are like, I'll just wait. It's fine. Yeah. If this um, is how I'm going to respond yeah. to uh, the Snyder Cut. And, you know, if I were given the option to go see that in theaters or watch on HBO Max, I would have waited. Yeah. Um, although I do look forward to Sunday watching <laughs> something four hours long in a movie theater and feeling safe about it when the time comes. I um, actually did go to a movie theater this past weekend. What'd you, um, what'd you well see? What'd you see, well, Richard? So there's a, a local theater near me in Brooklyn that is privately owned. And it finally reopened on Friday of last week. And so I actually have, have lived in New York for 15 years. I've never been to this theater before. Um, and so I was kind of like, well, should we go? And, you know, we, we there was like a 7 p.m. on a Saturday evening, which is kind of a weird time for a movie because it cuts right into dinner. Um, so we figured it wouldn't be that crowded. Uh, the Courier, the Benedict Cumberbatch, you know, spy, real, true life drama uh, movie that was at Sundance in 2020 um, was going to be like an Oscar thing for Benedict Cumberbatch. Now is now sort of ingloriously coming out in the spring. It was pretty empty. Everyone had their masks on the whole time. Uh, my partner is fully vaccinated, so we were a little bit less concerned or half less concerned. And, you know, it felt pretty safe. And the theater person who was working that night who took our tickets or digitally took, you know, looked at our, looked at my phone essentially. And then was there as we left was very like, how was it? Was it a good time? Like, thanks for coming. Like, you know, <laughs> see you soon. Like very, very like grateful for the, you know, the nine people in the theater at 7 PM on Saturday to see the courier. Yeah. Um, but I have to say, I, I don't think I'll be going every week. And I think if it was a bigger movie that would potentially draw more crowds, they're blocking off seats and everything like that. I don't know. I'm still sort of on the fence. New York's rates are not great right now. So maybe it was a dumb thing to do, but I, it felt safe enough um, and uh, was a nice little appetite. You know, it, it whetted the appetite for more when it really is um, safer and there are more people are vaccinated. Yeah, did it feel good, like like for homecoming in a way, like something that you used to do so much so often and haven't done in a year? Well, the funny thing is, is that 
right up uh, before the pandemic hit and everything closed down, I had been sort of reviving my love of going to a movie that I'm not seeing for work. Mm-hmm. So you get like concessions and you get, you know, the ads and the previews and everything like that. Um, I'd been going to the Alamo Draft House in Brooklyn. So for some new stuff, but also older things. And I was like, oh, I forgot how much I love this. And then everything shut down. Yeah. So basically, if I live near this movie theater, I feel like once every couple of weeks, there will be something I didn't need to watch for work that I didn't review. And yeah, I would love to give them the money and just have that. It's so fun to see previews, you know, yeah. and um, and to just like have that popcorn smell and everything. It, it was great. So it reminded me how much I love it. And I hope that people will have similar experiences when it's safe, you know, for them and over the coming months, um, because there really is nothing like it. Yeah. I'm so glad that uh, you got your Warner Brothers check to get you to to do your advertising for... <laughs> so I, don't know, I don't know who's putting out the career. I guess maybe that's who gave you your check to, to stop for the well, movie so, experience. So what it was is that Regal and Warner Brothers, I they always ask me before they make any decisions. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So they were like, Richard, how was your time going to this tiny independent theater? <laughs> there was actually a Warner yeah. Brothers executive asking you on your way out of the theater how, <laughs> right. how much fun you had. Taking a note and being like, well, okay, I guess we got to do it. Get what Regal is, on the phone. What is what is the loss and signal look like when they put it up in the in the nighttime sky for you to appear it's just the bat signal but like i know it's for me okay yeah i'm bobby finger and i'm Lindsay weber do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say who the heck is that our podcast who weekly is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't think of us as your cheat code to people magazine your glossary for hollywood a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Um, all right. Well, let's pivot back to the current award season. Um, we're going to talk a little, little bit later about the awards that remain between uh, now and the Oscars. But Sunday night was the WGA Awards, um, which is often a good bellwether for the original or for the uh, original and adapted screenplay races. Although the WGA has really specific eligibility rules, like you have to be a member of the WGA. So there are a bunch of movies that weren't eligible um, that we can talk about. Um, but for our purposes, the two titles to really talk about are that Promising Young Woman won original screenplay and Borat won adapted screenplay. Um, do you guys feel like that is a strong indicator of where the Oscars are going to go? Can I say really quickly, fun yeah. fact that I learned and I probably should have already known it, but maybe people listening don't know this, is that if anything is ever a sequel, it goes and adapted because technically it's like adapted I from the concept. Yeah. So like characters. 
Yeah. So like Toy Story 3 was an adapted. So uh, I I was just sort of losing my mind over this Borat win. Like, no offense to Borat, but I was just like, <laughs> I was just like looking at the category and it was like based on this acclaimed play, based on this acclaimed play, based on this acclaimed novel. And then it was like based on some characters from Sasha Baron Cohen. It is adapted was, in the Oscars too, though. So uh, it's no, I know. I know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No. And that's true of the Oscars as well. It's yeah. true of both the WGA and the Oscars. Yeah. So I just, I had some issues with this, <laughs> with this win here. Because it beat Ma Rainey, News of the World, One Night Miami, and The White Tiger. That One Night in Miami thing is really bothering me, I think, uh, more than anything else. Because I I know not everyone agreed, obviously. Like, One Night in Miami is not getting huge Oscar love and stuff like that. I just thought that screenplay was so exquisite. And Ken Powers just had so much to do this, you know, awards film season. And for that to go <laughs> to Borat instead really galls me. So, which is not a knock on Borat as a whole. It's just just like in this particular category, I am bothered by it. Okay, that's all. But Nomadland wasn't eligible, right? Right, correct. And that's presumably the the front runner for adapted screenplay at the Oscars. Correct. Although, I kind of had this feeling when it was announced that um, they had won like the 18,000 credited screenwriters, which like I thought it was improvised. I don't know. But um, when they won for Borat at the WGAs, I was like, I kind of feel like this year's Academy whatever they want Sasha Baron Cohen on that stage for something, mm-hmm. you know, and it's probably not going to happen in supporting. I guess if Maria Bakalova won, maybe she would bring him up. I don't know. But like, <laughs> I just feels like that movie was so, you know, of its time. And, you know, it just kind of arrived like a lightning bolt in the way that few movies have in the past year. Yeah. Um, and I just feel like somehow they're going to want to recognize that maybe the nominations are that recognition, but maybe not. And like, I don't know where the line between screenwriting and editing is on something like Borat, because you're doing so much like you're scripting a situation. You're following what actually happens when these real people are reacting. You're then turning that into a narrative. Like they also had to turn the whole thing on its head. They were in the middle of production when COVID hit. So that changed the plot of it. Like there is a feat of screenwriting in that movie that is probably nothing like what Kent Powers did when adapting his own play. But I think there, there is something to celebrate there. Um, maybe I'm just more of a Borat fan than Joanna is, but it's, it's impressive what they pulled off. <laughs> My life. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I don't know. I like, I, I hear you. Like there, there are ways in which to celebrate something that felt like a real source of joy in this last year. That's what I was sort of hoping would happen for Palm Springs at yeah. the, Glo- the Globes. You know what I mean? So like, I really do feel like there is room to be like, and, and, and we talked about this last week, actually, when I was asking about screenplay, I forgot that we were like on the eve of the WGA awards, but like, that has been a category where people like Jordan Peele or Taika Waititi, like, uh, who, I mean, Jojo Rabbit isn't like a romp in the park, but it is like, you know, quirky, yeah. um, you know, and, and Get Out is like a genre film with a lot to say, but a genre film, you know, so I think it is a category where they felt like they could sort of be a bit more fun and, and mainstream uh, focused uh, than other categories, but um I'm just not here for it. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think, I think, yeah, the, the conventional wisdom is that Nomadland, which is not eligible at the WGA, will, uh, will win this. And if that's the case, then there will be two. Uh, and if Promising Young Women, Woman uh, also wins in original, we would have two female winners in that. For the first time. For the first time. For the first time. And yeah, so a, a tweet that um from Cobb Buchanan, I think, pointed out that the last woman to win on like as a solo screenwriter, a screenplay Oscar was Diablo Cody, which is 
crazy. That was almost 15 years ago. Um, I did not realize it had been so long, which really boggles the mind. Women writers? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we had a subtext question from Frank Denae, who asked basically this. Now that Promising Young Woman has won the WGA over Sorkin, do you think Fennell could win the original screenplay Oscar too? And I, I think, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, oh, we, yeah. We talked that feels about, like an inevitability. Yeah. Think, yeah. And, I, and I'm starting to think, like, even if Carrie Mulligan won Best Actress, it would still happen. Like, it doesn't feel like an either or as much as it did to me maybe even a week ago. I think that's right. I do. Um, yeah. and, and that's really fun. And we talked about Emerald being like, you know, in the Taika or, or Jordan spot of yeah. like, watch this. Mm-hmm. The uh, Diablo Cody spot too. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, the, the the Matt Damon Ben Affleck spot. <laughs> we're, we're so excited that this person's here in Hollywood yeah. and can't wait to see what they do next. You yeah. Know, sort of thing. And uh, yeah. Frank also followed up saying, could the set, uh, Child of the Chicago 7 not make as this year's Irishman, which uh, the Netflix juggernaut that gets plenty of noms and zero wins. Um, and maybe, I, I'm not, off the top of my head, I can't think of what else it might be poised to win. Because yeah, for editing. This, this felt like its best shot uh, yeah. right now, you know, so. I mean, uh, yeah, I say that Promising Woman's inevitability. I think I was saying last week that Sorkin was going to win. So, like, I guess my <laughs> moods keep changing. But, you know, yeah. we have more information now. Yes. Um, but back to the Sasha Baron Cohen thing. Yeah. There, there is that fear of, like, okay, the writers are rallying behind Promising Young Woman. And maybe the rest of the branches, when voting for the prizes, will re- do the same. So that blanks. Chicago 7 in writing. Does that then transfer over to Sasha Baron Cohen winning in an upset against Daniel Kaluuya in supporting? I don't with, know. With, with a split. Yeah, the vote splitting thing that we talked about last week, too. And, and and because people want to see Sasha Baron Cohen get an, an Oscar this year. Can't they just <laughs> let Sasha Baron Cohen do, like, a bit at the Oscars? Like, I sure let hope him, they let him do a bit. Like, Let him do Borat at the Oscars if you need him on that stage so much, you know? They should ask Diane Warren if she can just add a songwriting <laughs> credit to her song for the Sophia Loren film. And if she wins, then there you go. He you was uh, he was on the shortlist for the Borat song. He would have been a, a triple nominee if that song had had made the nominee list. All right. So should we talk about what's going to happen at the Oscars now that we've brought up Sasha Baron Cohen <laughs> on stage? Um, so the Academy producers sent out a letter to the nominees, um, which I imagine Steven Soderbergh writing it because it just had such a funny syntax to it. And I don't know, it made me think of his like list of everything he's watched in a year had all those like all caps sentences for for no reason for emphasis um but the takeaway basically is it's going to happen in two locations at union station and the dolby theater and they want everyone to dress aspirational and inspirational which means you can get formal and you shouldn't go casual no Um, hoodies (laughs) unless it's with like a gown somehow joaquin Um, and then uh, no one can be on Zoom. You have to be in person. Um, and it's unclear if that will include like people pre-recording to some degree. They're going to have I ask people to kind of do an appearance on camera ahead of time to do something with it. Um, but yeah, the, the no Zoom thing is interesting because you can imagine a fair number of people, maybe your Anthony Hopkinses, maybe Frances McDormand even, uh, not wanting to come to Los Angeles for this. Um, but do you guys think it's going to be a net gain? It'll be interesting. And I think that after the Golden Globes debacle, people are looking for a shakeup, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, when I heard about it, I was like, well, that's pretty strict. But also, I was kind of excited. Yeah. You know, um, I also think it's interesting that in this letter, they're like giving instructions about how to give a speech. <laughs> oh, I know. Can I read that part? Yeah, please. <laughs> okay. Uh, our speech about speeches. It is our belief that the show isn't, quote unquote, too long because the speeches, having 
you said that. That's me trying to convey the caps <laughs> that occasionally emerges in this letter. We like to say this. With great freedom comes great responsibility. And if you're wondering what we mean by that, exactly. We mean read the room. Tell a story. If you're thanking someone, say their name, not their title. Don't say my manager, Peggy. Just say Peggy. Make it personal. The audience, le- <laughs> there's a lot of caps here. The audience leans back when they see a winner with a piece of paper in their hand. The good news is you should be pretty relaxed by showtime because you'll have been at a pre-show gathering at Union Station Courtyard for the previous 90 minutes with your fellow nominees and their guests. All right. So uh, I don't know if having been at a gathering for 90 minutes, like being at like your first post-COVID party for 90 minutes before, that doesn't sound relaxing, but maybe that's why I don't have an Oscar nomination. It's also only Oscar nominees and their plus ones. Yeah. Or I mean, maybe, or maybe plus some five. people get plus two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but no looky lose, right? Uh, no, no Joanna Robinsons. No uh, Joanna Robinsons. <laughs> I mean, they do give instructions on how to give a speech at the Oscar nominees luncheon every year, so that's you know effectively what they're doing there. You know, they um, there's one I think is maybe a Steven Soderbergh speech that they show as an example of how to give a speech. I should look mm-hmm. that up before I um, has Steven that. produced the Oscars in the past? I don't think so. Okay, I'm excited to see Stacey Scherz's name on here. Yeah, Stacey Scherz. I mean. I don't like I kind of liked this letter overall. Like I get that people want to defend the idea that like if you don't feel comfortable going in person to something, you shouldn't feel pressured into it. But also they mentioned the part where they're asking to interview people uh, in order to help us tell the story of your path to April 25th. We want to highlight the connections between all of us who work in the movies and show that the process is uniquely intimate, collaborative and fun. Usually, hopefully in parentheses. And that seemed to suggest they'll have something um, like what they did at the Grammys where they did these little like documentary segments on the major nominees, which I loved. Like I like the idea of them working these people into the show more thoroughly, even if they aren't there in person. Yeah, I think it'll also be really interesting to see who doesn't decide to come. Like if you know you're going to lose your category and you feel COVID nervous, are you just sort of like, thanks, no thanks. I mean, I hope Anthony Hopkins stays home. Like, he's not going to win. He's old. He he just he should just stay home. <laughs> he, I'm sure he would have a great time. Let Anthony Hopkins zoom. I think he should be the one <laughs> zoom zoomception uh, here. Should we just go down the list of nominees and be like, you you count? <laughs> Steven Soderbergh has worked with like so many big movie stars, but it's kind of funny to imagine that this is kind of him trying to get everyone he hasn't worked with in a room so he can kind of direct them. <laughs> yeah. This is being treated like a movie. It would be fun if he like did like traffic style, like different color palettes for different, um, you know, for different, different categories. And then like they walk out to like a pulsing Cliff Martinez score. Like I, I just want to see how like Soderbergh this might feel ultimately. Um, probably not very, but um, yeah. I just think this is the kind of, um, I mean, we're saying this sight unseen, but it feels thus far like the kind of innovative, adaptive thinking that uh, we had been hoping for from past award shows, which, you know, some pulled it off. The Emmys, you know, did pretty well. Golden Globes, I thought less so. So I, I don't know. I think it's good that people are are engaged. And I think that something about this letter that I found really sweet is that, like, it is reminding the nominees, but also anyone who's reading 
you know, whoever leaked it to the Hollywood Reporter or wherever else, that like this is about a community of creative people and 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 celebrating their accomplishments over the past year. And yes, we get to peek in and there's all kinds of cynical compromises and financial investments and all that stuff. Yes. But at its core, it's about like, let's get together, mingle, talk about our work, celebrate a few people's work. And then, you know, that's the end of the evening. Like, I, th- I think that's nice to kind of bring it back to that and offer that as an experience for these people who did work hard on these films mm-hmm. um, without being so at least from this letter, hyper concerned about like other things that have that are more, you know, external to that. So I was looking at Jesse Collins, who's the third person on this uh, letter who I um, was unfamiliar with. And he was a co-executive producer on the Grammys. And um, Katie can tell me whether or not that was good. But mm. more pertinently, he like has been on producing the BET awards for the the last 20 years. And given that this is a year where, you know, like there's just so much conversation around um, black led film and, and making sure that like um, things feel relevant and representative. I think it's uh, you know, it's very smart to put him on, on the list here. Yeah. I I was thinking about the Grammys, um, the way that they're talking about it as an active movie set, because, you know, if you watch the Grammys, what you see is when a category comes up, you see pretty much all the nominees like sitting there, you know, I was stunned when I was like, oh, Beyonce showed up. And then she like went and won some historic Grammy and it made more sense. Um, but what I was thinking about was all the shuffling behind the scenes of like getting people in and out and keeping their masks on and getting the tests. And like you, you just imagine the like, you know, military campaign size operation that's making that possible. Um, but a movie set has been doing that. Like anyone who's been back in production in the last year has experienced something similar to that. So you can imagine some of the nominees being familiar with it already. And, you know, some of the other ones like having been on a movie set at some point in their lives. Um, kind of being ready to be like, all right, places in five. And then, uh, you know, a million people on headsets, which the Oscars have always had some element of. But this would probably be ramped up to 11. I did yeah. want to shout out, we had a question from Corey Mahoney on subtext, who was basically saying, uh, is it a little unfair to international at-risk nominees? And he um, po- pointed out uh, Eugene Yun, who might also be another person who... Uh, would have to stay home, which is a shame. I know. <laughs> so let her and Anthony zoom, and everyone else can deal. Yeah, I don't know. I, I need to look at the whole list. I don't want to exclude anyone else who I think should definitely be zooming. But Anthony Hopkins, by the way, just in case you're you're concerned, is great on camera. I don't know if you see his social media. Yeah, he is. He just, he just like sits and plays the piano or recites like poems in Welsh or whatever, and it's all delightful. So, well, I hope he does the pre-interview thing at least and uh, gets yeah. that that video and then, like let them show his his TikToks as part of the Oscar broadcast. <laughs> Uh, well, while we're talking about award shows, uh, we had another subtext question from uh, listener Yanni Sinest, who wanted to know just which award shows to watch for between now and the Oscars, which are on the 25th of April. Um, so the Writers Guild just happened. The PGA Awards are on the uh, 24th, actually. So actually, as you hear this, they will have already happened. Um, so that will be interesting to know what they're thinking. Um, and then the big one is the SAG Awards, which are on the 4th, on April 4th, on Sunday night. Um, they've already announced it's going to be like an hour-long pre-recorded thing. So I think it's going to be really different from what we're just mm-hmm. talking about from the Oscars. But I think it could also be pretty good um, as kind of a more straightforward award show. I, I believe the WGA was pre-recorded as well. I didn't watch that one live. Yeah, Kyle Buchanan was live tweeting it as his, you know, part of his role as the New York Times kind of award season coverer. And he, someone tipped him off in his Twitter thread to the fact that like, they asked every nominee to film like some, some amount of seconds of just kind of 
dead air essentially to get like room tone, Mm -hmm. but then actually use that footage to make it seem like the nominees were expectantly waiting to hear who won. (laughs) What a nightmare. Which I think is kind of nuts. And then everyone had to pre-record an acceptance speech. I think kind of like they've done a couple drag race seasons where they've actually taped like multiple winners and then just selected one and shown us that. (laughs) Um, So I think that there's a there's a slight cruelty to that in some ways, but also like if you got to do it, you got to do it. So I guess that's similar to what the SAGs is doing. Yeah. Well, at least the SAGs, you have actors winning and they're better at, you know, faking the (laughs) the surprise if they don't don't know if they actually win yet. Um, So the SAGs are on the 4th uh, and then throughout April. So I'm using a calendar at awardswatch.com, by the way, if you want to Google this to see for yourself. A great website. Great website. Super helpful. Uh, Then you have the Visual Effects Society Awards, Art Director Guild Awards. The Directors Guild Awards are on the 10th. That's a big one. Uh, I think we all expect Chloe Zhao to win that one. But if she doesn't, that's a big surprise. Um, The BAFTAs are on the 11th right after that. Um, And those, I'm intrigued to see what they do for an in-person element there. Costume Designers is after that. Casting Society, the Annie Awards for Animation, Cinema Editors Awards, Cinema Audio Society Awards. Um, and then by then you're getting toward uh, April 20th when Oscar voting ends. Um, and then the Indie Spirits being the last one, which is on the Saturday before the Oscars on the 24th. Um, so lots lots to keep us busy. <laughs> you just described what sounds to me like a year worth of <laughs> <laughs> well, you just think of all the people who like are in LA and it's their job to go cover all these in person every year. At least this year they get to stay home. Sure. sure. Yeah, I've I you know, we've all I think all kind of dipped into that world on uh, on occasion uh, over the past few years. And it is funny to run into the L- those LA people and they're just, they don't even know where they are. They're like, Hi, I've been wearing the same goddamn dress for 3 weeks. Like, you know, it's it's just a, a very funny little chunk of time. Yeah, their hair is like permanently shellacked into mm-hmm. an updo. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, you get your you get your hair blown out and then you never wash it so that yeah. you can just keep it. <laughs> True um, soldiers, salute them. I, I salute know. them. Yeah. They're get, they're ready. Those those heels are coming back out of the closet soon. <laughs> I was going to say soldiers and stilettos. <laughs> yeah. Um we'll talk about the SAG awards more next week um because there's some interesting things to look for, but just to to close the loop on our Chicago Seven conversation, I'm still waiting for it to potentially upset at the SAG Awards, and then for a real big freakout to happen for there because Nomadland isn't nominated. So watch out. What a what a way to end a segment. Watch <laughs> out. Watch your backs, Nomadland. But maybe Sleep that will the- that will like sate the, the the desire to see Sasha Baron Cohen getting an award on stage. You know? yeah. <laughs> like- Although he won't be on a stage, he'll be. Well, you know, where, yeah, uh, yeah, metaphorical stage. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starred Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with the romantic and sexual feelings about this? mysterious woman and such we have it we have a conflict between three people in a game meant for two is it a sports movie or a sex movie find out on critics at large from the new yorker new episodes drop every thursday wherever you get your podcasts well, speaking of SAG nominees and the Oscars in general, um, Joanna, I'm so excited that we get to share your interview with Riz Ahmed. Um, you, I mean, I think for the minute Sound of Metal came out, we wanted you to talk to him because you've been you've been on the Riz train for many a year. Um, and what did you guys talk about? Uh, we talked about a lot of things. Um, I did start by asking. He did this uh, interesting like 
live show stream event for this album that he put together during the pandemic um, that he was supposed to go on tour for. Anyway, he did it at the Great American Music Hall, which is a San Francisco venue. So I was like, I was like, Riz Ahmed, where are you? And he was, <laughs> he was in Northern California. So that's amazing. Uh, you guys yeah. were like down the street from each other. Exactly. I mean, he would in an undisclosed Northern California location. Did <laughs> I talk to Riz Ahmed? Uh, no, it was fantastic. And it was just, it was really interesting to hear from him because like, this is the subtext, I think, of the conversation um, that he, you know, he, he, came out of the gate uh, as, as far as like American audiences were concerned with Night Of and that opened the door to a lot of opportunities including like a Star Wars and stuff like that and I think what we're seeing now from Riz Ahmed is someone who has like tasted that sort of like super mainstream fame and was like okay that doesn't nourish me creatively or that alone will not nourish me creatively I would like to see what else I can do with you know, whatever juice I have here. And so he was like, like you, Katie, he was like, I didn't think anyone was going to see Sound of Metal. <laughs> like, I, I just wanted to make it. So this is wild. Uh, so, so yeah. So, it's, you know, he's got his own production company now. So like just listening to him talk about what he is most interested in doing uh, was really fascinating to me. Um, so yeah. So let's hear from Oscar nominee Riz Ahmed. Where are you right now? I'm in um, Oakland in the Bay Area. How about you? Yay! I'm <laughs> yeah. also in Northern California. I was going to ask you about that. I actually wanted to start by asking you about that, if that's all right with you. Oh, it depends what you're going to ask. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask about this um, this live event you did at the Great American Music Hall in San Francisco and right? how you picked that venue for this project. Yeah, I mean, I was up in the Bay, um, basically. I'd just been filming all around California. And, you know, a lot of California I hadn't explored before, like up in, you know, Mammoth and um, June Lake. And, you know, we, we just did the whole kind of run of this incredible state. And um, and we ended up kind of around the Bay. And, um, you know, I was kind of staying around there with family. So it was kind of by accident that we found ourselves there at a point when I wanted to do the live stream. But the more and more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know what, it's it's actually the kind of perfect place for the live stream because for so many, for like, you know, over a hundred years, it's represented that kind of Westwood beacon, hasn't it? For immigrants, for people heading West for a gold rush. Um, and that was true, you know, back in the mid 1800s. And it's true now in the early 21st century where people heading westwards for the Silicon Valley, you know, the Silicon Rush. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of it being this kind of like giant gilded carrot dangling in front of the eyes of like, you know, uh, um, migrants and people seeking a better life felt that actually it would really um, be apt for telling this story about generational migration that I was going to tell with the live stream in particular, because San Francisco today, particularly during COVID, what I saw has fallen short of that promise for so many people. You know, and there's such homelessness and there's such inequality there. So in many ways, it represented to me, uh, you know, this broken promise. I think that's right. And I, I'm, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about your process of you, you have this project you were planning to do some sort of tour around it and you, you know, as, as 2020 taught us, we make new plans. Um, how did you come to the live stream idea and how did it wind up working out for you sort of artistically? Like you said, circumstances sometimes make, make decisions for us, right? We were going to tour 
um, the Long Goodbye album, and because the album tells a story, tells a story of a breakup, you know, tells a story of being dumped really by the country that you call home. Right. So in the album, my kind of lover who is is kind of kicking me out of the house and changing the locks on me when I come home one day is Brittany or Britannia. And, um, you know, it tells a story of this toxic relationship between Britain and the children of empire. But it's also one that relates quite neatly, I think, to the American example or Indian example or the Philippines or Hungary. Right now is a time when a lot of people are waking up one morning and not recognizing, you know, the, the, the country that they thought, um, you know, they called home. And so because it tells that story, we knew we wanted to tell a story with the live show. Mm-hmm. You know, I just thought I'd be able to do it in person. So <laughs> do it at the Manchester International Festival and at Brooklyn Academy of Music. And when that didn't happen, you know, it's sometimes a case that limitations can be very freeing. We realized, well, okay, if it's not going to be in front of an audience, what does that mean? And we spent the whole show really answering that question. What is the point of a gig without an audience? What am I doing here? Yeah. What's the point? What's the point in me being here? Did I make a mistake coming here today to perform a version of, you know, my identity to you? And as I asked myself those questions, I realized, huh, that's what my granddad would have asked himself when he migrated from India to Pakistan. Yeah. So my uncles would have asked themselves when they migrated from Pakistan to the UK. That's what I asked myself coming from London to Hollywood. You know, I asked myself, what am I doing here? Yeah. Did I make a mistake coming here to try and perform a version of my identity for you? And so suddenly I was like, mind blown. Like, if you really surrender to the circumstances around you, they can inform the work. I was curious, you, you know, you talked about broken promises and awakenings and, and what's going on uh, globally uh, this this last year or, or beyond. And of course, you know, we get this great news that you're nominated for an Oscar, the category that you're in has more diversity than ever before. And then right hot on the heels of that, we get this horrific thing that happened in Georgia and the Asian community. And so I'm just wondering if, you know, if it's not, if it doesn't feel too superficial to talk about what that makes you think about your ability to represent, to show stories, to show people, to show journeys um, that can change minds. Representation matters, but representation is not going to solve all our problems. Yeah. You know, it's part of a, of a bigger puzzle that we all need to solve together. You know, I really believe that you travel as far as the vision you see as an individual and also us collectively as a society. And insofar as culture is a space where we can imagine both who we are and reimagine who we are, think yeah. about who we could be. Yeah. is a very important place that shows us a vision of, of where we might be headed or, or what we can imagine, you know, into being. So, you know, a world where you have various and diverse kinds of people of, of genders and ethnicities and sexualities who occupy that kind of hero role or, you know, is, is crucial. Is that going to solve all our problems? Absolutely not. Yeah. No, nah, you know, it's about us taking that and running with it. It's about, it's about legislation. It's about laws. It's about socioeconomics, it's about policy, you know, it's about how we distribute opportunities more widely in society. It's about who we protect, who we say is valuable, um, not just, you know, in, in, in our culture and through words, but also in, in actions and protection. Yeah. So um, it is, it, I think it is a part of the puzzle, but it ain't going to kind of, 
it ain't going to get us to the promised land all on its own. You know, that's a, that's a team effort. Um, but, but, you know, I, I do believe that having said that there is something profoundly fundamental about stories in creating change. And that's because, you know, every time I approach a character as an actor, I have the same thought, which is I'm nothing like this person. How am I going to play this person? Mm-hmm. I've got nothing in common. When I'm playing Ruben in Sound of Metal, I'm like, I know nothing about this genre of music, let alone how to drum. Never hung out with deaf people. I mean, this is just a world that's... And it's interesting is for a lot of audience members, they'll feel the same way. They'll go, you know, generally when you approach a character on screen for the first time, you're like, all right, who's this person? How am I going to relate to them? What have I got in common with them? And by the end of the journey as an actor, you're like, oh, I am this person. (laughs) This role found me to teach me about myself. Like we're the same. You kind of want to grab people and start and go, you don't, you got no idea. This is, this is my life. And it's the same feeling that hopefully an audience has at the end of a movie. They're like, they are in the shoes of that character feeling like, wow, this is me. I'm, I'm crying with this character. And so I think stories have this power to, to allow us to find ourselves in the other, Yeah, you know, to, to, to really confront us with this, profound spiritual truth, which is underneath the circumstances that, 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 that may be different in our lives, there's a core of humanity that we can all relate to. We're all on this same journey um, of finding home. Something I love about Sound of Metal, one of my favorite films of last year, is the way in which the deaf community, this is sort of going off what you just said, the way in which the deaf community is not, your character, Ruben, has this great fear of loss of a loss of many different things but what the film is never interested in is is depicting the deaf community as one that is a community of loss this is a community that it is a privilege and a pleasure to belong to for the characters in this film and um i was just wondering if you could talk about that depiction specifically and also sort of what you feel it is what is at the core of of ruben's fear of of letting go in this film it's a fear of loss of control, yeah. I think, you know, and control means being in your comfort zone, being in the familiar, you know, he's someone yeah. who really abides by a routine. And that's understandable because he's got a history of addiction, you know, something that I spent a lot of time on, you know, in this preparing for this role. Yes, it was about learning sign language and immersing myself in the deaf community. Yes, it was about learning the drums and immersing myself in that kind of music scene. It was a lot of it was about just going to AA and NA meetings, you know, Mm -hmm. and just uh, going to addiction circles and kind of immersing myself into, into that culture, that recovery culture. And, you know, what you start to understand is that actually, I would say the vast majority of us in modern life are addicts, you know, whether it's screen addiction or workaholism, what is it about? It's about filling that, that, that void inside, you know, it's about trying to, it's about control. The way I feel is difficult. So how do I control that? Yeah. You know, whether it's drugs or alcohol or sex or whatever it is, you know, culture, you know, uh, it's a quick fix culture. Addiction is about getting the next fix. Mm-hmm. How do you fix yourself? Yeah. You know? And so I think for, for Ruben, what lies at the heart of his fear is fear is loss of control you know, relapse back into addiction. In order to prevent that, he has a very controlled regime and obviously losing his hearing throws that all off balance. Yeah. Um, 
But in, t- in terms of, you know, the first point you're making, I mean, hopefully this film doesn't even just, de- just depict the deaf community as a community. You know, it's so many different communities. It's, it's as yeah. rich and complex and diverse as, as the hearing community is. You know, it's almost crazy to talk about the hearing community as one monolith. And the same goes to the deaf community. There are right. some people for whom, you know, deafness will will be felt as a loss at some point in their life. For other people, it will not be. They'll be born into deafness and the richness of its culture. So, it's, it, it, you know, it, and I guess the last point I'll make on that is, actually, I don't think this film depicts the deaf community as anything. It allows deaf people who happen to be deaf to represent themselves. Yeah. in an authentic way, often improvised, you know, the true to their experience. You know, we, we're not doing any favors to the deaf community. They were doing a favor to us and letting us into their world yeah. um, for a moment. You, I've heard you speak eloquently about the ways in which you could look at Sound of Metal as, even though it was made before the pandemic and and all of us going into lockdown, as a, as a really solid metaphor for that isolation, for as you say, loss of control, we're sort of one event away from our carefully constructed, you know, ways in which we hold our life together, feeling like it's falling apart. But I was just thinking this morning about towards the end of the film, there's, you know, this, this party sequence when Ruben's trying to sort of hold on uh, to something he had before one last time. And uh, I was like, is this film also almost a metaphor for the anxieties we're having thinking about uh, re-entering society? (laughs) Like, I know a lot of people who are very anxious, who are excited that things feel like they're progressing towards opening back up and stuff like that. But there's also a lot of anxiety that comes with that as well. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. This movie is a metaphor for the full COVID, you know, in three acts. Here I am, a workaholic with my kind of um, idea of who I am. It's actually based on really flimsy circumstances. Boom, health crisis comes along, throws me into the purgatory of a kind of lockdown where I'm forced to assess what really matters, staring into the void, lost and isolated. And then, huh. Can I reintegrate myself? Can I go back to how things were before? The answer is, folks, no. no. There's no going back. We're only going forwards. And when things open up again, they will be different. Things will be different. Offices will not be as full. Parties may, be, may feel slightly different. You know, it, I think it's, that's, that's kind of one of the, I think the, the truths of the heart of the film is you, you can only go forwards and, yeah. and often the direction forwards isn't one that you control you know it's one that you kind of have to surrender to and flow with but it's interesting because you know in the context of the film Ruben is trying to kind of get back to something that is no longer uh, attainable which is a moment in time yeah you know something that you know you you did a lot of more in lockdown than I was able to accomplish. So I'm, I'm sort of in awe of all of that. But one of the things that I really admire that you did were these conversations you had about mental health on your Instagram that I just thought were really valuable and important for people. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what, what inspired you to, to do that. My own experience, really, and experience of most people I was talking to, which is this is hard. Social isolation can be really hard. Um, loss of your routine can be really hard. And, you know, I dare say that I'd gone through a, a you know, a rehearsed character version of it a year and a half earlier with Ruben. Yeah. And it really did feel like, okay, that's crazy. It's the whole world's doing a Ruben, you know, uh, going through the arc that, that this character in Sound of Metal was. Yeah. Um, and my brother is a psychiatrist, Dr. Cameron Ahmed, and 
you know, he often kind of like has just, just has great advice that he puts online. And, and I said, bro, let's just, let's just talk about this. You know, I think this would help people. And I just got such an overwhelming response. Um, I mean, more than anything, I guess the realization you're not going through this experience alone can be very comforting. You know, even loneliness is something you're not going through alone. Yeah. There's someone else feeling lonely right now. So I think that that, you know, that kind of connection was something that um, was valuable to people. And I think, you know, that's something that's a revelation to Ruben as well in The Sound of Metal. He realizes that deafness isn't just something that cuts him off from his old life. It's providing opportunities for new and deeper connections with himself and others. Can you talk, you talked about, you know, only going forward, right? Um, wanting to build new things. You've got this production company, Left-Handed Films. Can you talk a little bit about sort of what you're wanting to build with that going forward? Yeah. Well, you know, the thing I always ask myself if I take on a role is, does it stretch me, you know, creatively? Does it push me? And does it stretch culture? Mm -hmm. And I think the way you stretch culture and the way you stretch yourself is kind of the same, which is go out of your comfort zone, take an audience out of their comfort zone, really. Mm -hmm. You know, we were saying that stories have an, a way of forcing you to, to recognize yourself in, in the other, to find yourself in places where you didn't think you'd find yourself. The further away from your starting point that is, you know, the more you've expanded someone's heart, mind and yeah. expanded culture, you know. So really that's the same mantra that we're taking to left-handed films. You know, it's left-handed films, not just because I'm left-handed, but because that's a different way of doing things, a way of flipping the script. Our mantra is go left, you know, when others go right. There are so many amazing TV shows and films out there that are going to be made and should be made and that probably someone else can make. If it's kind of straightforward, solid stuff you've seen before, we're probably it's probably not for us, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've always I realized very early on that my kind of role and my contribution was to kind of stretch things a little bit because I didn't fit neatly into some of the pre-existing molds. It was to try and break it a bit and try and sit outside of the conventional. And that's the ethos of, of the company, really. So we just really want to stretch people's ideas of the kind of stories that can be told, who gets to tell them, and, and also how they're told. You know, so our first feature film release, Mughal Mowgli by Basam Tariq, it's a real mashup of genres. You know, it's a musical, it's a horror, it's a comedy, it's a family drama about spirituality. The whole thing is like, you know, there's all kinds of stuff going on. And, and we just feel like, you know, a story like that hasn't been told in that way before. So, um, we, yeah, we're just trying to kind of fire on all cylinders to, to try and stretch culture and defy expectations. What does it feel like to be, so you're nominated for a lot of awards for Sound of Metal, but what does it mean when you're nominated for Mogul Mowgli, a film that you co-wrote, a film that you sort of, you know, had more of a hand in the making of it? You know, it's strange. It, yeah, on paper, you know, Mogul Mowgli, I, I kind of also co-wrote and produced, but you still give everything. You know, you give everything to Sound of Metal, you give everything to Mogul Mowgli, or you give everything to you know, uh, another project that we're really proud of to, to see done well this award season is this short film we did, The Long Goodbye. You mm -hmm. know, you give everything to that. You, you still empty the tank. You just have to kind of, you know, put it in different places for different projects. So you know, that's the, the ideal is that, you know, 
everything you make is close to your heart and you feel a connection to it. And it's, it's very strange. I've got to be honest with you and, and kind of a beautiful kind of realization in a way that, you know, all this kind of work that I'm making right now that I feel so, so grateful and so lucky that, you know, is being recognized right now, you know, say all three of those, those films, it all came from a place of kind of feeling like, fuck it, I don't know what to do next. And you know, I'm just going to do what I want to do. And actually, like, yeah, my career is probably tanking. And so like, whatever, like, I don't care. I just want to do what I want to do. I'm going to do what I'm going to work through some stuff I need to work through stuff that I think is going to like make me grow. And yeah, you know what, probably no one is going to see Sound of Metal. It's first time director, we've got 10 pence to make the movie. And we've lost all our fun in the night. And same with Mughal Mowgli. And The Long Goodbye, like, honestly, like, I'm just going to just try my hand at this stuff. And it's always the case that that's the stuff that stands out and that people connect to because they can they connect to the honesty behind it, you know, and it doesn't feel like a calculated hodgepodge of kind of, uh, you know, um, second guessing audiences. And, and so right. I feel like the biggest reward, you know, from this moment in my life is is to just really hold on to that realization, you know, um, What's it like? I mean, I know you've, you've talked before about how winning the Emmy for Night Of opened a lot of doors for you, right? A lot of opportunities. So, you know, the act of being an Oscar nominated actor is theoretically going to do that for you in, in whatever direction you care to take it. So what is that moment for you like? Talk me through hearing that you got the nomination. I just want to start with the first Point sure. Yeah. Your question, which is everything that happens in life opens doors. Sure. You got to know which ones you want to walk through. Sure. Sometimes having more and more doors open doesn't help you. Right. You know, particularly if it doesn't help you, you know, align to your own purpose um, and kind of stay on your path of what sure. you're here to contribute sometimes. So actually it's kind of an interesting experience, you know, to, to kind of, to have doors open, to walk through some, you know, and, 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 you know, I don't regret any of the doors I've walked through, but I, I would hope that, you know, if, if there are doors that are open now that weren't before that I'm able to kind of be a bit more discerning about like, actually what, what's the best use of your time and energy. Right. Um, but uh, in terms of kind of getting the nomination, you know, I mean, I think probably a lot of, artists and a lot of creatives just a lot of people um struggle to receive praise or accolades right because i think we are all programmed with this inner voice of like work harder do more be productive you know things yeah. why lockdown was hard for so many of us you know yeah. it's just like got this capitalist brain or whatever where you're just like right. go 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 and uh, produce and so when you get something like that, it's actually kind of, you know, really takes at least me a minute to kind of like turn off the engine and receive that and go, wow, hey, man, like and talk to like the little kid that was like, oh, I want to act, but I don't know if I can ever do it or could I, you know, and go, dude, hey, little guy, like, <laughs> you know, check it out. Like, we're, we're here. Isn't that crazy? And, and, you know, so it's almost like 
it's hard for it to sink in and hard to kind of bypass the programming of like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Just now you've got to do it again. Now just keep your head, you know, it's right. hard. To, so there's, so there's, it's been an exercise in realizing like, oh, sometimes it's good to turn the engine off. Outside of my own situation, I have to say, I'm just so pleased and proud for the film. You know, Darius Mondo is a first time director who's made something with such vision and precision and bravery yeah you know who decided yeah we're going to shoot in sequence even if it means we have less time and money we're going to shoot on film even if it has the same consequences yeah you know what whoever i'm going to cast doesn't matter if they play the drums or not they have to play the drums for real he just right. kept setting up these challenges for us that all made us all kind of you know step step up that you know it was just an exercise in like buccaneering like kind <laughs> of uh, like bravery and mm -hmm. like high it was a high wire act that he he kind of orchestrated and and to see us getting nominated for best picture i'm so proud of it i mean even just the sound design who spends six months recording like my stomach rumbling and the sound of me breathing and swallowing to build a sound design uh, and a soundscape from he just really went above and beyond I'm really stumping for sound of metal in, in, in a lot of categories, but definitely the sound category. It's so integral to the story you're telling. It's the, it's the perfect use of that uh, technical skill in the art of storytelling. So, yeah, it's kind yeah. of making use of cinema. Uh, and also, you know, just the way it's shot, it's kind of, it's very, it's like a first person movie almost, you know, you've got like a first person shooter. Mm -hmm. It's like a first person movie in a way. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm going to ask you one last question. You can uh, decline to answer, of course, if you want to. Um, but I was just, I was just wondering, this is such an unpredictable awards year. You know, this is awards podcast. It's what we talk about. This is a very unpredictable awards year. One thing has felt certain for a very long time, which is that Chadwick Boseman is likely going to win the award in your category. What that experience is like being nominated in a category where you're pretty certain you know what the outcome is. So maybe that anxiety isn't part of it. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I have to say, man, that we made this film at least I made this film. I mean, Darius has got a totally different level of kind of confidence and belief and genius. Yeah. Um, really under the impression that probably no one would see it. Yeah. You know, I prepared for this role for the better part of a year, learning drums and going to addiction clinics and, you know, learning sign language, kind of thinking, you know what, I'll get to learn some new skills. I probably won't get to where I need to get to for the, just the way it has turned out. Yeah. The fact that we are here having this conversation, the fact that the honor of being nominated alongside, you know, people like Chadwick and people like, you know, Anthony Hopkins and Gary Oldman, like to my heroes. Yeah. Um, this is, this is a win, you know, this is a yeah. win for the film and it's a win for all of us. And, and the truth is that, you know, I understand his excitement and, you know, the idea that it's competitive and there are winners and losers, but, when a light gets shown on meaningful films that reflect where we are at as a culture, yeah, um, that's a win for all of us. So, so honestly, I, I just kind of feel like it's just a, now that I've got past my my workaholic reflex <laughs> of being nominated, I just feel like every day is a win. Every day, people are talking about Sound of Metal and talking about it alongside these other beautiful films is a win. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for this conversation. I really appreciate it. And for Thank this beautiful you. film. Thank you. Appreciate you. Thanks a lot. 
Okay, that does it for this week's show. Um, next week, we'll have things to talk about, but we also wanted to get into some of your broader questions that you've been texting us and tweeting at us. Um, so if you have kind of a big picture Oscar question, um, or even a small one, like we'll kind of do anything, ask us anything, um, you can get texts from us by going to joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or texting 213-513-7035. Um, so you can text us your questions there. Or you can tweet at us at Little Gold Men. I'm doing this out of order from the usual way, so i got to rearrange my brain. But anyway, ask us your questions. We really would love to get into them. You've had great questions so far. It's so good to hear from you guys. Um, but in the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com and on Twitter at Little Gold Men, as mentioned. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Richard. Rylaws. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for what we all hope to be saying, come Oscar Sunday, goes to Katie Rich. Oh, Beyonce showed up. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a, a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts.